My sincere thanks to our friends over on Patreon. I appreciate your continued support. I'd also welcome you to join us in the More Christ community. If you do so, you'll receive a number of perks, including our online book club, where you'll receive free ebooks, early access to new episodes of More Christ, and promotions for in-person events. I'd also welcome you to like, share the podcast, and give a five-star rating, depending on where you're listening or watching the podcast. And thank you all and God bless. Hi, welcome to Our Christ. I'm Marcus. Today I'm joined by Adam Coleman. Adam is the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, an op-ed writer, public speaker, and the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. He's a columnist for Human Events, a frequent contributor for the New York Post and the Publica. His articles published in Newsweek, The Federalist, The Park Times, Daily Mail, Post Mail, Long List, Unheard, Scoon TV, Free Black Thought, Life News, HQ, and uh, Human Defense Initiative. I suppose, say, first of all, this evening slash this afternoon, Adam, I want to ask you if you could share a bit about your story. I suppose, in light of what you've shared in recent articles, I want to quote a wee bit, which struck me. After years of financial struggle, a short stint of homelessness, and having to move back home a couple of times, I was finally securing my financial independence. I thought Mm -hmm. I made it to where I was supposed to be, but then everything changed in 2020. I wonder if you might tell us what happened to um, maybe leading up to then, what are some of the key elements that have helped form you and the man that you are now then? Uh, man, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say uh, to kind of summarize my, my 20s and leading into my early 30s was a struggle. Um, you know, there was one point I was homeless for a little bit um, and got some help um, from some strangers, to be honest with you, helped me out uh, until I got on my feet. Uh, I moved out of state uh, to Tennessee and moved back. I was actually homeless in Tennessee for a couple months while I was, in, while I was out there, and then moved back to New Jersey. I've been in New Jersey since. But um, just financially, it's been a struggle, um, whether it's finding a decent job, uh, things seem to be going well, but that job is uh, killing me, uh, you know, stress-wise. And it's hard to turn away because it's good money and having to turn away from it. And, um, you know, it was during, uh, during around 2008. So the financial crash was happening. So a lot of people were unemployed. Um, I haven't really talked about this, but um, I don't know how unemployment works where you're at or uh, but over here you obviously have to apply for it and if they deny your unemployment for whatever reason you can appeal it um and so they had denied my unemployment of course because that's what the government does because they don't <laughs> want to pay any money um so then i appealed it but the problem was a lot of people were appealing and so it literally took i want to say eight months to to have my appeal not even to win it, but just to have my appeal hearing, which is basically a phone call. And so that means that I was eight months of not getting any income. And I had to find other ways to try to make some money as far as nothing illegal, but just like selling stuff online. Um, closer to the point of having my appeal hearing, I ended up getting a job uh, doing customer service. But at that job, I was literally making half the amount of money that I was making prior, um, which led to me having my car repossessed. Uh, So it was just, it was a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) that's happened. Um, But, uh, you know, things were, there economically, it was like, 
I was making headway, then something happens, lose my job. I was making headway again and switched jobs. And I got fired after two weeks uh, because I got sick. And I guess me being sick, I didn't look enthusiastic about the job. So <laughs> uh, so they fired me. And what happens is if you don't stay at a job longer than six weeks, you don't qualify for unemployment. So I went through that whole process again. Um, so it's just, it's been that kind of thing. But even out, out of that came um, my career opportunity, actually, because I finally was able to break into IT. Once I broke into IT, then my my career started to actually take off. So it was actually a good thing I got fired after two weeks and go through that struggle. So I try to see the positive in things, uh, even in, in that moment where like, man, this is a struggle. It's like, but I came out of it and uh, and I'm more confident in myself because I came out of it. And uh, you just never know what's going to happen at, at the end of it. So to kind of bring it to 2020, I was an IT manager. Um, you know, I was making good money, independent, uh, you know, started traveling. You know, I was telling you before, I've been to London uh, a number of times and uh, been to London once prior uh, to 2020. So I was just, I was doing my own thing and I feeling like I was like finally uh coming into my own. And then 2020 happened with COVID and George Floyd. And that's when I felt like I wasn't able to express myself. Like I, I wasn't a public person. I didn't have a public profile. I didn't really even use social media. I wasn't really a fan. Um, I'm still not that much of a fan, <laughs> but I, but I use it. Um, uh, but I, um, it's one thing to choose not to say something it's another thing to feel like you're not allowed to say something mm -hmm. and that's what it felt like it felt like the media people on social media uh, everybody gets to speak for my existence as a black american except for me right it's not a lot i'm not allowed to say anything unless i'm just regurgitating what they're saying so that's when um i started going onto free speech forums to figure out like am i the only one that feels this way you know, because at first you feel kind of crazy because you turn on the TV, turn on social media, and everybody is having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't. I don't know who George Floyd is, and I've been Black in my entire life, and I've never felt the way that they are expressing. And I know a lot of Black people don't feel the way that they're expressing. But am I am I alone in, in wanting to say something about it? Um, I got encouragement, actually, from the people in the free speech forums to actually write more often because of how I express myself. Um, so uh, and to kind of rewind a little bit, the year prior, I thought about writing a book, um, some something revolving around questioning things, but I had no idea what to write. I think I sat down for like a day and that was it. Uh, so uh, when I got the encouragement from these people and then I was like, you know what, maybe this is the book idea that I was waiting for. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, let me just try and just figure it out from there. So from that point on, it took me about nine months from start to finish. Um, my wife helped me edit it. Um, I, she was my, was she my girlfriend at the time? Mm -hmm. uh, she, she helped me edit it. And um, yeah, I was just really happy as to how it came out. Um, and the response I got from people to understand what I was trying to say and um, understand the temperament. Um, and it, I'm really proud of the book, to be honest with you.
Well, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. Um, I appreciate that, Adam. And some of your experiences really resonated with me. I think from Chris's perspective, I've been out of jobs and different things in the past. And it's hard to even find a passion to get into one because there's so there's so many ones that are available that are anti-Christian and all this kind of stuff, which makes it even more complicated. And you'd have to sort yeah. of sell your soul to get there. It, so it's a constant struggle for me nowadays. Like, so I appreciate where you're coming from. Um, so I, I haven't, so I am a Christian, mm -hmm. um, although I am looking to get baptized, um, probably in February. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I've talked about it a little bit as far as I was never an atheist. Um, I grew up, you know, we moved around a lot and, uh, we never had a consistent church or anything like that. You know, there were period we we're in a catholic church and, and then a baptist church and you know so we were just bouncing around and even with us going to church was just inconsistent um and when i became a, a young adult like in my early 20s i like had like a moment of just asking myself like am i a christian and i tell people i'm a christian but am i really do i really believe this and um i think after that conversation i i accepted that i was agnostic I wasn't confident enough to be so certain that there is nothing, but it, I was like, but I feel like there might be something. I just have no idea. You know, this is kind of like the shrugging of the shoulders <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of perspective, but like all those things that I told you about, like I could, I could break down even after 2020, um, especially, but I could break down all those moments, like uh, the, the pitfalls and after the pitfalls, something completely unexpected happens because I just stayed in it. Um, something I thought I was supposed to do and someone prevented me from doing it, right? And it ended up being the best move. People who looked out for me and didn't have to, you know, I just, I look at all these things as like signs. Um, I look at all the, the trouble that I went through, the struggle that I went through, um, overcoming stuff like social anxiety. Um, I see these as tests you know, mm -hmm. and, and test of strength. So I, I truly feel like I, I don't regret anything that I went through all the bad times. I'm glad I went through them because now I can, I can talk about it and I have a platform where people hear and resonate with what I'm saying. And so I think the biggest thing, just like how I felt like I was alone and how I felt, you know, George Floyd and everything um, a lot of people feel alone in like, am I the only one that's struggling with this issue? Am I the only man that feels this particular way? And I'm being told I'm not supposed to feel this way. Um, and and it's like, no, you're not. And and knowing that you're not alone is incredibly important um, because then it's like, okay, I'm not alone. And on top of that, someone made it out of it. How can I do that? Mm -hmm. Um and I, one thing I'll say is, um, whether you want to say it's my purpose or God's purpose for me, my purpose is to help people in any way possible, right? Um, I've always worked in customer service in some form or fashion, whether I was doing IT or over the phones, tech support, or whatever it might be. I've always felt good helping people. I always felt like, uh, especially if they were thankful, like I want to go above and beyond to make, make sure that you're good. And, um, 
and that's the that's the type of person that I am. I truly enjoy helping people. I I try to mentor people when I can. I look out for people. You know, I'll see sometimes people tweet stuff of distress and I reach out to them and I talk to them and it privately and I don't I'm not doing this for clout. I'm like are you okay? Mm-hmm. And and we're we're having a dialogue and sometimes people will come back to me later like thank you so much for reaching out to me because I I really needed that. Um one one man in particular was isolated in his home and I had him call me like he he was so isolated that he got rid of his cell phone and he had thoughts of suicide i don't want to get into his uh, situation but i had him call me and we just talked i was driving somewhere i was driving to work and i said call me and we talked for about an hour and this was last year sometime and i would check in with him every so often and recently he told me that he's back to work and he said thank you so much for for being there and talking to me and it was only because he made a message i was talking about something i think i was talking about anxiety or social anxiety and he made a message that sounded like he's still in it and it and it wasn't it sounded like i i felt like i needed to reach out to him basically mm-hmm. um and you know i just trust my instinct when it comes to stuff like that like i need to reach out to this person and I'm glad that I did. Maybe I prevented him from doing something that he'd regret, you know. Um, so I'm really glad I was able to help a stranger um, overcome that moment. Because when I was talking to him, he was really defeated. And he said, I gave him some hope. And that's really hard to get. Mm, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing, Adam. And um, yeah. I actually wanted to touch upon some of your influences and ask about, are there any figures who've been especially inspirational or influential for you? And um, one that I can think of is someone like Thomas Sowell, who I also adore. And I, I wonder if you might speak to that a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of the influential figures are people that I've actually encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been one for like, I try not to be someone who's like all about like celebrity culture or like having idols who are so distant that you'll never touch them. Mm-hmm. My, my influences have basically been like mentors for me. Um, I might actually write about this soon. It's funny that you asked this question, but, uh, one of my influences is actually a mentor now is, uh, my friend Batia, she's the uh, opinion editor for Newsweek. Um, she's been on Fox News plenty of times, The Hill. She was a co-host on The Hill uh, Rising for quite a while. And uh, she's just been a, a great friend. You know, she's I've met her husband and uh, her friends and been to her place multiple times for, for dinner. Anytime, because uh, she's Jewish, anytime there's some sort of... Um, uh, Jewish gathering or celebration, she invites me over to be part of it. And I really appreciate it because she doesn't have to invite me. Um, and, you know, she lives out in Brooklyn. I'm in New Jersey. So, you know, it's like a hour drive. It's not a big deal. Um, you know, she's just always been a wonderful person and someone career-wise I've kind of looked up to as well. Um, she doesn't have all the answers and she'll never claim that she has all the answers, but she's she's ahead of me and she's willing to help in any way possible. 
Um, she's given my name out when she didn't have to. She's um, given me advice. Uh, one particular moment, I was having kind of like a, a mid-career crisis, just trying to figure out like, um, what exactly do I want to do with this? And because uh, it was after some, a, a particular event that I went to, and I was like, I don't want to be like that. Like, if that's what success looks like, I don't want to be like that. And quite literally, I, I reached out to her. I was like, I need to talk to you. Can we meet and have lunch? And she agreed. And it was like a week later, we just sat and talked for like two, three hours. And she made me feel a lot better as far as like how I how I see things, but also encouraged me to write. Like, you have to write about this. Um, and I was afraid to kind of write about it in and uh you know, she encouraged me to do that. So she's been a, a strong mentor for me. Uh, I've told her this, and she's one of the most humble people ever. So, um, you know, it's hard to, I, I'm like that too. I, I'm bad with compliments. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to handle them. But, uh, you know, she's been someone I'm really thankful for having a chance meeting. You know, she was actually, she's the first I would say major publication that I wrote for, and she found me on Twitter. Um, you know, and she gave me an opportunity, and and I I took it. So I I'm just really thankful for her. Uh, so I don't know about like influence, but like maybe influence slash mentor. Um, she's someone who is at the top of the list amongst a lot of people, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Thomas Sowell is impactful in, 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 in a little bit of ways. Um, not as great as a lot of people might assume. You know, I actually have a, I have a drawing that someone made of Thomas Sowell um, on my wall. So, but he, he's, he's an influential figure as far as like a, a thinker, especially as someone who used to be a leftist and kind of hit reality and is like, that, this stuff doesn't work. And just profoundly um, intellectual and wise, you know. I, I look up to people who are wise. I, I like I like people. You know, wisdom comes with experience and time. Um, and I look up to people who are like that. So, um, yeah, I guess you could say Thomas Sowell a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks, Adam. And again, it's it's something I can sympathize with. As a kid, I would have self-identified is very like socialistic and would have thought like your fellow Americans like Howard's in <laughs> the, the great <laughs> thing and everything but now thank god I've come to I hope some semblance of wisdom over time uh, but influenced by other people and helped by other people greatly and um yeah. so another thing I want to ask you about a little bit is your recent experience at the art conference and um, this yeah. recent article of yours, How God's Plan, uh, led me to the art conference. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about that and um, why it and the work of folks like Peterson and that whole project is important then. Yeah, so uh, just to explain what ARC is, it stands for the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Um, I didn't even know it formed. It actually formed this year. So it's kind of incredible what they were able to put together in less than a year. It was formed in April. Um, and it was spearheaded by Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, he's definitely an influential figurehead for uh, the organization. 
Um, and it was set up as the counter to the World Economic Forum. So uh, the, the emphasis is to bring together people who are influential, um, top of whatever industry, whether it be politics, um, whether it be uh, media, you know, just put put together like-minded people from all over the world. Uh, it was 1,500 people from 73 countries. Um, and on top of that, it was invite only. Um, they had an invite committee. And so it was only specific people that were invited um, and only specific people that, that came. So it was, it was definitely unique because it was invite only. I've been to conventions before and this isn't like a typical convention. Um, everybody that was there was somebody, you, even if you didn't know who they were, and it was just a matter of like trying to figure out like, who is this person? <laughs> you know, um, one of the funnier moments, I was sitting at the table with, uh, with, uh, Tina Deskovich with Monster Liberty and Billboard Chris, and we were sitting together having, having breakfast. And there's these two guys from Slovenia that were sitting at the table with us. So Tina's looking at the one guy, she's like talking about herself and then she was saying like so you know what do you do because we don't know who anybody is and he's like oh you know i was the former prime minister of slovenia she's like i'm sorry <laughs> you know you don't you don't hear that often like oh yeah, yeah I, I was the prime minister that was a while ago anyways <laughs> and the guy that was sitting next to him was a party leader um in in slovenia so it was that kind of event it was just these all these different people from all over. Um, the first day, it was everybody kind of asking themselves like two questions. What's the purpose of this? And what do you think will come out of this? Mm -hmm. Like those the main two questions like everybody was asking, including myself, uh, because it was unique. You know, um, a lot of the conferences that are right-leaning that I've been to are kind of like some of them, I, I won't say all of them. Some of them are kind of like cheerleading, rah-rah, everybody just, you know, a ton of speeches of saying the same stuff over and over. Yeah. But this wasn't that. This was very purposeful. Like there was a theme for each day. Um, there weren't too many speeches. There weren't too many panels. There were lots of breaks because they wanted you to, to actually interact and network with people. Uh, but I got my answer as far as like, what's the purpose of, the the event uh actually the first night so the the event was during the day but they also had nighttime uh get togethers that you had to sign up for ahead of time and they were based on region so i did the one for north america and there it was basically like cigarette lounge, uh, cigar lounges right with an open bar so it was like three rooms and it was limited capacity so you know I, I was on the list. I went up in there and I'm looking around. It's Dr. Raz, Senator Mike Lee, um, a Canadian uh, parliament member, um, and just like other, some other people that are kind of sprinkled in that you don't know who they are. But the one guy who was with ARC, he gave a short speech and he looked at all of us and said, now talk to someone you don't know. Right. And now I think that encapsulated the whole point of this event. They have no idea what's going to come from it. Uh, he actually told a story. Uh, I won't even attempt to tell the story, but it was basically about these guys who were from different industries who kind of came together 
and they created stuff that we still use to this day, but all because they came together uh, like in a very casual manner, like, you know, for drinks and stuff like that. And they would meet up uh, like once a month or something like that. And they had no idea that, you know, this type of thing would happen. They were just meeting up because they liked each other. Um, but something came from that, that event of just actually getting together and speaking with each other. And that's what they were trying to replicate. They're trying to replicate. Um, I, I hate to say like the political right, because I don't think it's necessarily that. Um, I want to say is people who are in the center, maybe center right, because um, it definitely wasn't far right or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put in that in that framing. Um, but it, it was to put these people who typically wouldn't encounter each other quite literally would never meet each other together so they can possibly collaborate, possibly help each other um, to establish connections. And it, and it's actually helped me out even so far. You know, I, I got another writing opportunity coming from it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a think tank that I'm um, keeping in contact with the person from there. Met some, some people from Sweden. You know, so just, uh, I met Dr. Roz uh, and Dr. Warren Farrell. So it's just, it's that kind of thing um, that it made it real special, to be honest with you. Mm, that's excellent. Thanks, Adam. And um, I suppose, what do you hope that your unique contribution could be to that? And what do you, what do you have you taken away that you're going to work on now? Um, you've sort of hinted at a few things there. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to say about that? Um, as far as my contribution, you mean to ARC or just in, in general? Beyond ARC, I suppose. Okay. So I'll give you a bit of a context. Um, sure. I'm quite friendly myself with Jonathan Pajot, who's one of the main guys behind ARC. And he, he actually uh, spoke. He spoke yeah, at the event. Yeah, he gave a great speech too. And um, he came to Ireland. We did an event in Dublin there a few months ago. And I didn't really have a clear set of goals and everything for my YouTube channel. So he gave me some pr very practical business advice. So, so to speak, so what are you going to do next? And what's your unique contribution and so on? So it really got me to think. And um, I set up a Patreon community from that and different things. I started doing merchandise and everything. Um, mm -hmm. Just small things, really, to try and make this a passion of mine something more than just a little side project so it's kind of right. intrigued um, from your perspective what you're, you're hoping to get out of it i suppose um 2023 has been an interesting year um you know i think last year it was kind of like um yeah i want to say last year was kind of me exploring Right. Just like trying anything and everything like uh, someone invited me to do something. I just did it. Uh, if you want me to write somewhere, I just wrote. Hmm. Um, but the the end of last year was when I decided to do this more in a full time manner because things were heading in that direction. Like quite literally, um, I think it was like the week I, I went. Yeah, the, the week I like fully started going full time was probably like the busiest week I've I've had. And and it was like that for a number of weeks where I had I think it was like five articles published in a week for four publications. Um 
and it was just it was crazy and then on top of that i had a bunch of interviews i think i had like three interviews uh i think it was three tv appearances in three countries in that week so it was it was that kind of like holy shit kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh kind of moment but um this year has been interesting because uh with me really diving into being full-time and you know, talking to someone like Batia, and and that happened earlier this year, uh, quite literally at the beginning of this year, talking to her and kind of figuring out what's my path. And so my path is to be authentic to myself. I think that's that's ultimately what I'm trying to have come through. The reason why I talk about my struggles is because I want to help somebody by talking about it. And even if it's just one person, that's one more person than before if I said nothing. Um, I want to be relatable because I'm really I'm just a, I'm a regular person, right? And I want to be able to to express ideas and see things and talk about things that other people aren't expressing. Um, I think especially in the political cultural realm, there's a lot of like low hanging fruit, let's just say that. A lot of low-hanging fruit and it's not interesting to me whatsoever um there are certain topics i don't talk about because it's talked to death um even race you know me writing my book i really don't like talking about race all that much because i said what i needed to say in certain circumstances if i feel it's necessary to say something then i will but i don't jump on every you know ambiguous thing i want it to be with purpose um i want to not talk about stuff because it's purposefully uh, purposeful for me to not talk about it and I've actually had people notice like you didn't talk about this I'm like yeah specifically and I tell them why and I think talking about something is just as important to know when to talk about it versus uh is, and it's also important to know when not to talk about something as well um and I see a lot of people stretching to talk about something that they have no idea what they're talking about right so I I quite literally stay in my wheelhouse as far as topics that feel comfortable for me, um, which thankfully is a lot of things. And I'm, I'm glad I haven't been pigeonholed to, to talk about just race, mm -hmm. you know, or, or being black or anything like that. Cause to me that that's old um, and it gets boring really fast. Um, I want to talk about what it's like to be a father. I want to talk about what it's like, um, you know, protecting children. I want to talk about, all of these things that really matter to a lot of people, but they're not given the opportunity to write for the New York Post or to write for different publications to have their voice heard. Like a very common sense, understandable, relatable viewpoint that's not hyperbolic. Mm. You know, I'm I'm a very, very rational, empathetic person. That's just my nature. And to talk about, like uh, my my recent article talking about leftists and loneliness right nobody on the political right would write something like that and actually it, it took off it went pretty viral because of that um and it was a rare moment of empathy that a lot of people like um i was just on tommy laren's show um mike huckabee you know for, uh, former governor said this is an astounding article that he wrote you know, just all of these different people were like, wow, I never thought of it like that. I never saw it that way. And I'm like, good. Like, 
we need to start seeing things this way because there's a lot of dehumanization that happens on both sides, right? And it's the easiest way to uh, destroy your opponent is to make them not appear human. They're monsters, they're evil. But actually they're just flawed human beings just like you are. So why don't you try to figure out why they're flawed, you know? Um, and I don't think all these people are evil or monsters. Maybe sometimes they do things that are evil, right? Thinking that they're doing something good. Mm -hmm. I've written about, are they evil people or are they just, or they just possess evil ideas? And I, I tend to think that there are more people who possess evil ideas thinking that they're actually beneficial versus someone who is truly evil and knows that they're doing something wrong. Um, you know, and I, I think we should ask these questions, right? But the only way you'd ask these questions is if you um, don't see the person who differs from you as automatically evil. Um, so the, I try to talk about ideas versus people, um, but I criticize people with power because they deserve criticism. So um, I guess that's like the long way of saying, I try to do uh, my, my wheelhouse and my purpose is to talk about very specific things at very specific times, um, or like as my subsec is, I want to speak wrong at the right time, mm -hmm. <laughs> so <Yeah>. to speak. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thanks, Adam. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting you should say that too at this moment, because recently um, I'm hoping to have an interview with Tammy Peterson, Jordan's wife, and I've been listening to a lot of her podcasts to try and get um, more in touch with her mindset and her soul and so on. And uh, she had a, I was listening through the, I was doing some work outside and was, the podcasts are just playing one after the other, so to speak. So I had my ones that I was particularly interested, the guests I was particularly interested in. And um, it just rolled on to the next one and I had things in my hand, so I couldn't just turn it off. I was listening to it and it was this lady, Lauren Southern, who I'd sort of, always just assumed she was some sort of right far right nut job and wouldn't have bothered to listen to her and then they were speaking about her entering this political arena from a young age and um when she hadn't developed her thoughts and everything and people jumped on her whenever she she get garnered this following and then people jumped on her whenever her marriage didn't work out and everything and i was a bit I was really convicted by it you know i was struck that yeah this lady had this nuance to her, this emotional depth, this maturity. And this is somebody that I would have just looked and thought, ah, no, it's some like weird right wing nutter and dehumanized them like that. And I think there's this perpetual danger of that to your point. And um, it's also interesting for another reason, what you say in line of Jonathan Pajot, who I mentioned, I had a great conversation with him and a philosopher called Bernardo Castro, and they were talking about the diamond in philosophical terms, or jo jo Jonathan would say the guardian angel, and how we have to go with this higher self to be authentic, I think, to your point, and it might be uncomfortable, but that is, that's the real you beyond this little construct that you have for yourself, and right. um I'm I'm glad to hear that you're getting baptized too. I think that's powerful, and uh, it sort of it it clicks in my mind with some of the things that we've been discussing. Um, going beyond those little political camps and Jordan figures like that have talked about how we've collapsed the religious kind of spiritual language into the political realm. And then what happens is you have this kind of demonization of other people. So rather, rather than having an abstract 
realm where you have demons and things like that you have this oh, the right wing people are the demons or the left wing people are the demons and so on so i appreciate um what you're doing in terms of the content that you're putting out as well as the character that you're communicating if that makes sense right. <laughs> no no it makes perfect sense um i i can't stand the the oversimplification to destroy people that you don't agree with it's fine to you like I'm not a particular fan of Democrats right now, but I don't, I don't slander them just cause, right? Mm -hmm. um, I personally, and I, I think I've said this before, I would love to have two sane, rational political parties that actually cared about what average people want, but we don't have two sane, rational political parties that want that. We have one that's an elitist party that overwhelmingly cares about what the upper class wants, which is why they care about what progressives want, because many of the progressive influences are of the upper class, right? And, and it goes hand in hand. So they just spout their garbage. That makes no sense, right? They ma it makes no sense to regular people who aren't ideologues, right? And then you have a Republican party that's just less of an issue, <laughs> right? Um, they have good ideas, terrible implementation, <laughs> like all, all the time. They have good ideas, terrible messaging. Um, and I see that as a genuine problem because you can have great ideas, but if you can't convey it to people and convince people, like I, I, I literally talk to people who think that you shouldn't try to convince anyone. And I'm like, how do you think politics works? Mm -hmm. Like, why do they pay all this money for advertising to convince you to vote for them? They think you're just supposed to do it. And it's just supposed to be, duh, self-evident. You're supposed to vote for Republicans. And it's like, no, that's not how people work. It's never been how people work. People want to be convinced, even when they say they don't want to be convinced. Right? You have to persuade people. You have to persuade people with with like good information, you have to persuade people by appealing to emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And you can do things manipulative or you can do things overt, but you have to try to persuade people. And I, that's what I try to do. I try to persuade people that this is a good idea because it is a good idea, right? I'm not trying to trick you. I'm trying to make you make it relatable so you understand my point. Um, I've talked about illegal immigration where like the, the Republican messaging is talking about fiscal issues, talking about how much it costs, you know, but that's not what appeals to people. What appeals to people is people, right? You can say, cause it's true that this is human trafficking that men, uh, probably men too, but women and children are being raped, right? Um, there are families that are being displaced. You're, you're allowing cartel members to dictate the lives of people from all over the world. Some of them who are desperate, some of them who are just taking the opportunity of having an open border. That's the reality that's happening. There's human suffering that's happening at the Southern border. People are, are being displaced, coming here under false pretenses who think that we, you know, we're just a land of gold. And if they just show up here, they'll become rich. It's like, no, we work really hard here. <laughs> you know, we work, we work a lot and we work really hard. And even that sometimes relegates you to just working class status, you know? So yes, 
we have opportunities, we have wealth, but um, these people are being taken advantage of and believing that they're um, they're going to be saved by coming here. We are safer. If safety is an importance, then yeah, we're safer. But I mean, also to a degree, because if you're that poor, you might end up in a dangerous neighborhood and it may not be as safe. So it really, that's how you would actually want to talk about the illegal illegal immigration uh, situation from a human perspective. Um, so I think I think we need better rhetoric when it comes to stuff like that. But um, I don't know if I veered off. But no, that's so, great. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> and and I think another thing that I appreciate about your work is this element of the road to hell can be paved with good intentions and we have to go beyond good intentions. And that's something I like about Jordan Peterson and folks like that too, that this is the good side of pragmatism. You do look at the byproducts of these things and it's not just prepositional. It's not just this idea that I have. It has to be probably incarnated to use the sort of Christian language. And um, mm -hmm. this say uh, thing that Christ says and Jordan refers to by their fruits, you shall know them. Um, I suppose if you... Uh, you might be bored to death, as you as you say, when speaking <laughs> about the book. But I, I'd like to, if if we can explore a few things about your book, would you be happy to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, um, if we might talk about black victim to black victor, then identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. And again, uh, to what you're saying before, this goes beyond race. And I think. Your insights are applicable increasingly in places like Ireland, which is part of the reason why I'm interested in talking to you. So um, I suppose, first of all, uh, building upon what we've talked about already, what, what moved you to write that book and what do you hope that readers will ultimately take away from it then? Um, I mean, uh, like I was saying before, I think what had me start that process was feeling like I wasn't allowed to speak. And... Uh, I really wanted to say something. I'm I'm kind of one of those people, not to the nth degree of like authority, but when someone tells me not to do something, it makes me want to do it even more. Um, and I deal with that sometimes online uh, when people are like, you know, you you should have said it like this. I'm like, well, I didn't. <laughs> and I'm going <laughs> to keep saying it like that. <laughs> like that's the, those are the times that I get adversarial with people online, with strangers. It is my biggest pet peeve when someone tells me I should have done it this way, I should do it this way, um, or I'm not allowed to do this. I'm not. Allowed to, don't tell me what I'm a grown man. Like, don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. You don't even know who I am. Anyways, beyond that, I I felt like I wasn't allowed to to say something, which pushed me to want to say something. I thought about my son. Um, I thought about all these things that were happening with all the riots that were going on. I thought about all those things. Um, and they were my motivation. And actually, 2020 was the perfect time to write it because quite literally, I would be driving. I used to, there was a period of time where I was living far from my job and I was driving to work for like an hour to hour and a half each way. No, it was probably about an hour and a half each way. But I was listening to podcasts and then I was listening to an event and then something would happen. Something racial was happening again. And then I listened to it and I'd be like, ah, pisses me off so then i get to the office and then i would spend an hour hour and a half writing about it including it in the book that happened multiple times um you know so it was it was a perfect time to kind of talk about these things um within the book but uh what i'll say is like the the process of writing it 
was interesting for me because I didn't know how to write a book. Um, I, I'm not a, a trained writer. I didn't even go to college. I went to tech school. So um, I just know how to how to communicate. I know how to talk. And the writing is like anything else. The more you write, the better you get. Uh, it's about finding your voice. So all I knew was that I wanted to talk about race. And I came up with some chapters and stuff like that. And over time, some of those chapters go away or they get fused together. But then when I was trying to ultimately answer the question that everybody's asking, what's the biggest problem facing Black Americans? Mm -hmm. I was like, well, it's family, right? Um, and so actually speaking of people who come into your life, um, a friend of mine at the time, I sent her a sample early on of what I wrote. And I was like, oh, what do you think? And she's like, it's it's good, but um, women read books too. Mm. And I was like, what does that mean? She's like, there's no emotion in it. I was like, that's a good point. There is no emotion in it. So I made it that from that point on, I was like, you know, what would really help is like, if I tell stories and if I tell my story. And so that's why you see like a theme, like with my Substack, most of the stuff I write in my Substack are personal. They're stories. I'm storytelling. And, and I realized like storytelling is really relatable. It's really humanizing to talk about it in, in that particular way. Even the, the, the leftism and loneliness article, I talk about my friend who died from an overdose. Like, and, and I talk about myself being an outcast and I understand like storytelling is incredibly powerful and I don't see it enough within in the political realm, but I, you know, that's just more room for me. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's kind of what led up to me wanting to write the book. What I want people to take from the book is is ultimately uh, at the end of the book, I have nine solution chapters because I didn't want to just complain. Um, often people just make books and, and complain about stuff and have no solution. I just wanted like realistic views of the world, ways that people can see the world, uh, whether they're black or white. But I wanted to bring across that we have more in common than we do different. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And after writing the book, my thesis is absolutely true because most of the people who reach out to me and say, I had a childhood ex experience like that. I know someone who went through that. My cousin's going through that. My family member is going through that. I've had people who worked in juvenile detention Right. And they say 99% of the kids are coming from that scenario. They have no parents or just one parent. Right. Like that's not a coincidence. And they don't look like me. These people, most of the time, do not look like me. The way we kind of talk about single parenthood is framed as a, it's a black issue. Is it disproportionate in our demographic? Yeah. But if you think about it in another way, there are more white people who are growing up in separated homes than black people. If you think about it that way, because they're a majority population. Mm -hmm. So it's, if that's the case, and actually Hispanics are even higher than for, for white Americans. I think, I think white Americans are somewhere in the 30% range. I think Hispanics are about 50%. So, and we have a growing Hispanic population in our country. So family separation is a really, really big issue. And it's going to become more and more dramatic 
like quite literally most of the social issues that we talk about, whether it's homelessness, drug addiction, crime, all link back to family dysfunction, um, school shootings. I, I wrote an article talking about this. It's documented. The vast majority of those schools, like nine out of 10 kids who do the school shootings come from single parent homes, foster homes, adoption, divorce, right? They do not come from happy, secure homes with both parents. Like overwhelmingly, that, that's not the case. And I, that's actually like the, my, the most important thing I want people to take from the book um, as to how important it is because the child that you do not raise is going to be the child that society has to pay for. Whether it's they gotta they have to pay to house them in jail, or they you know somebody's paying maybe with their life, right? Because that child killed somebody, right? So everybody else pays for that, and that child suffers, and that child takes out their anger and frustration on the rest of the world, and they don't believe they can change. They don't believe they can heal. This is who they are. No one cares about them. And that this is this is ultimately what we're seeing. So, um, I even with my my article writings, that's that's like the number one thing that I try to find an, an area to talk about. If it means talking about my situation growing up without my father, then so be it. I have no problem talking about it. If it helps someone realize that like, you know what, I need to check on my kid. You know, I need to be careful with the next person I sleep with. Maybe I need to have a little bit more purpose, you know, then that's, that's what it is. So. Mm, I'm into that. And um, yeah, I, I grew up for most of my life without uh, my father too. He died when I was quite young. And um, mm. again, so a lot of that resonates with me, but I also think it's interesting. And Oz Guinness, who you might've met at the, the conference in London, he has this lovely quote that I, I think of often about contrast is the mother of clarity so I suppose to, to draw the contrast, then I have a friend, another friend, a professor from the States, actually, Nancy Piercy, and she's written this book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, and talks about how masculinity is seen as problematic in and of itself, rather than there can be aberrations from, you can have good masculinity and bad masculinity and so on. Right. And um, I want to contrast that with your experiences of fatherhood and positive male mentors and so on. And uh, what are we getting wrong in that um, very black and white way of looking at the issue? And would you care to speak to that? Yeah. Um, so just so people understand, you know, my I didn't grow up with my father. I rarely saw him. Um, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, like my father was a stranger. Um, and he died a number of years ago um, when I was a, as an adult. Uh, I think it was in my early 30s when he passed away. And I found out that he, that he died about three months after he died. So to kind of give you an idea, like how disconnected we were. Um, so I, I've said this before. I didn't know how to be a man. I didn't know what a man was. It was kind of by trial and error. It was kind of just learning from my mistakes and learning from from different people, sometimes remote, oftentimes remote just seeing what people are doing. Um, and I think some of that also comes from just like trusting my instincts. I think there's a lot of things about men 
uh, and probably the same thing for women, where it's just instinctual. Um, and But we're being told not to trust our instincts. Um, when you have self-esteem issues, when you're depressed, right? Uh, when you have anxiety, all those things that I went through, you don't trust yourself, right? You don't listen to yourself. You blame yourself, actually, um, for everything. And I, I started to trust myself. I started to listen to myself. I started listening to other people as well. And I started implementing certain things that made sense that didn't, you know, and got rid of stuff that didn't make sense. Actually, it's funny. Are you familiar with the like the online community, like the Manosphere and stuff like that? Yeah. <laughs> so I have a I have a weird relationship with it currently, but I am one of those people who can see something and say like, all right, you know, that's BS, that's entertainment, that's true, right? So I'm pretty good at that. Um, some people aren't. Some people see that. Uh, they take the entertainment as being everything. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, no, that's clearly, they're being hyperbolic. It's entertainment. But this part is true. Um, there was a period of time that I felt like there were certain people, definitely not all of them, but there were certain people who were part of the manosphere that were actually somewhat beneficial um, as far as discussing certain things that I never heard discussed before. And and uh, talking about male to female interactions, not in a way that I heard before. Um, really, to be honest with you, it comes from was it uh, evolution psych evolution um, uh, evolution biology is basically what they're describing, like male to female uh, interactions and things of that nature. They just don't call it that. You know, that's something that you kind of learn later on. But what they're saying is true they kind of just take that portion and inject it into its own ideology. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. And so I'm listening to it. And I'm like, that makes sense. All right, that other stuff doesn't make sense, but that makes sense. And I started to implement it in my life. And I would even watch the stuff with my, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's not my wife, but I would watch some of this with my wife and we would talk. We would have interactions and we would we'd pause and, and have these discussions and, and really like iron out these ideas with each other. And I think that was actually something really beneficial for me. I know a lot of people don't really like talk about like the manosphere being beneficial for men because mm -hmm. now it just, it just appears to be uh, a men's grift that is wholly ideological that just appears to be the male version of feminism at this point. Um, but at one point, there were certain people that weren't completely like that, um, that had some good ideas and that had some truth and they weren't complete douchebags. So, <laughs> so I, I could, I could watch them and, and, and say, um, you know, I think they're right. Uh, Kevin Samuels is the first person that comes to mind. My wife and I used to watch him. We talk and I didn't agree with everything he says, but there were a lot of things that he said. And he's like, you know, he has a point. That makes sense. And we would have these, these discussions, but um, to kind of go back to your, your original question, um, I think the manosphere actually helped me even within my relationship as a man and interacting with my wife and becoming more confident in myself um, and understanding like you, you need to be confident. That's important. That's interaction. 
um, to to put yourself first as a man, because if you do better, your wife does better, right? And to not put all of your your um, all of your importance into a woman because she actually doesn't even want that, right? It's it's all these different things, and I was doing the opposite for quite a while. Whatever you want to do, no, 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 she doesn't actually want that. She wants you to make the decision, right? She wants you to take the lead. She wants you to do these things. Um, you know, she wants to feel secure with a secure man. And uh, there was periods of time that I wasn't secure. So I often learn from my mistakes, just so you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So be becoming a man for me was a lot harder and and I don't know if you had the same experience, but it was a lot harder for me because I didn't have that male figure on a day-to-day -day basis to kind of show me what this looks like. But I I really, the last thing I'll say is I, I really saw how important all this stuff was when my son became a teenager. Um, and people would tell me like, your son is watching you. And they didn't mean that like figuratively, they meant that literally, like my son's watching me, he's watching what I do, he's watching my mannerisms. He wants to feel some sort of closeness with me. He wants to get into the same type of stuff that I'm into. I'm his role model. And that's something that I never really thought about before. Uh, I think my, my motive of being a father was to not be my father. And I realized that like, it's deeper than that. It's more of training my son and preparing him for the world, right? To giving him the, the keys so he doesn't struggle the same way that I did. He's going to struggle no matter what, right? That's what being a man is. Man, To be a man it means to struggle. Mm -hmm. But being prepared to struggle, I think, is, is different. Being aware, like, all right, you're about to go through some shit. Okay, I'm prepared to go through some shit. It's, it's going to be okay because... I have a plan and this is what I'm trying to do um, rather than like get hit with something and not be prepared for it. And then you're down in the dumps like I was. Mm, that's excellent. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. And um, I want to ask you about the flip side of that question, so to speak, and much of modern feminism. So again, Nancy Pearcey, who I mentioned, and Mary Harrington, there's lots of interesting writers also at Mary Harrington, also unheard, are offering this alternative feminism, which I think is important. But uh, we're still suffering with, in the popular culture, with a lot of the ill effects of that certain wave of fem feminism and so on. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. dominant cyborg feminism, as Mary calls it. Um, I wonder what role that has played in the States, in, say, including for African-Americans and disintegrating the family and so on. And uh, I suppose, why do you think it's so enduring and what are some of the alternatives that we might offer? Because whenever you were speaking there, it reminded me, of, there's this great idea in Yvonne Illich where he talks about the corruption of the best as the worst. And I think this is an example where women have that, um, it's obviously, it's it's both sexes have, they can be emo emotional and they can be open and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. as a general point, it seems to be women are more empathetic and so on and uh, right. more susceptible to a lot of the <laughs> the lies of the state that they it sort of manipulates their good nature into thinking well we have to do this we have we have to look after this a uh, person as if it's caring whenever it has these rotten fruits so to speak that we talked about earlier would you like to speak to that and um 
how we might navigate that from your perspective? Um, so the, the feminism thing is interesting because I think you're absolutely right. I always feel like I have to say this. Uh, when no one has a problem with women having equal rights, women voting, most people don't. Most rational people don't. I think rational people don't. I don't. I wouldn't even say most. Rational people don't have a problem with this stuff, right? Um, if a woman wants to have children or not have children, that's purely her decision. Whatever she wants to do, you know, things like that. So I'm, I'm all for those things. Um, you know, I grew up in a single parent home. I saw my mother do uh, incredible things, uh, have a career. You know, she kind of had to and to take care of us. Um, now. In my opinion, what I think is happening is feminism has turned into telling women that the best way to be a woman is to be a flawed man, right? So it it it, it tells women to discard all the, the wonderful things that are unique to women and to be similar to men, even more so to be a caricature of, of a man, right? So not even exactly the same to be combative for combative sake to be aggressive um you know being a boss bitch you know like yeah. no guys like yeah i'm a boss asshole <laughs> <laughs> like no, no no guys purposely like yeah look at me I'm, he's trying to do that um he might be an asshole but he's not that's not a it's <laughs> <laughs> not a term of endearment um but i i think um I think feminism has poisoned femininity, has made women think that the things that feel natural, we talked about instincts. We talked about what feels good, what feels right, what feels natural. And it tells them to ignore what feels natural and go with something that doesn't. And what feels natural is actually old fashioned, right? But it's, you know, in my opinion, our instincts are like, it's like signals. And, and God made us this way for a reason. We have those signals to keep us on course, right? This is the direction that you should go. So I'm not a big fan of what feminism has turned into, um, especially how it's contributed to the um conflict between men and women um you know we look at the dating world and it's men's fault it's women's fault it's men's fault men women suck women are whores uh men suck all they want to do is have sex like everybody's making the same complaints about each other <laughs> um and really they don't even talk about actually what the problem is the problem is that they're trying to date strangers that's actually what the problem is why are they dating strangers? Well, it's because we live disconnected lives now in the West. And we don't grow up in communities the same way that we used to. And we don't, because we don't build communities, we don't know anybody. So now you have to try to uh, take one encounter with someone and determine if this is a life partner or not. And that's not what we used to do. Um, so I don't know if you're a single guy or any, are you single? Married, yeah. Are you married? Okay, yeah. cool. You're, you're all set then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you and like, actually, since you're married, I have a question for you, uh, if you don't mind me asking. 
No, um, did when you met your wife, did you already know who she was, or did you meet her through someone that you knew? <laughs> so I, I was uh, living in London at the time. I was teaching over there. <laughs> we met, we met online. <laughs> oh, you met online? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of a cringe looking back but it obviously worked out well for us thank god and um i, I used a a platform where you could be very specific about what you wanted that they, they had the same values and all this kind of stuff mm. that was quite good better than tinder and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you probably shouldn't get married if you meet somebody on tinder <laughs> <laughs> that's right um, no, I was curious because I actually asked this of my followers on Twitter once um, if they knew, like if they either knew the person or if they met them through somebody that they knew. And most of the people said uh, they uh, it was one of the two, that they, they weren't a complete stranger, that they met them through somebody. Um, and the same thing with me. I knew her brother in her brother was the social proof for me. So she felt comfortable interacting with me because of it. So I bring that up because of the whole social proof thing. I think it's really important, especially for women to feel comfortable. Comfort is really, really big for them. Um, and without that social proof and without that person, like, tell me a little bit more about this person. Oh, they're cool. All right, they're cool. All right, I feel more relaxed versus person online they're like having to look at like every mannerism. They looked that way when I said this question, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes it really, really hard. Um, also one thing I don't, we're kind of veering off a little bit, but I just think it's interesting. I like, I like male to female dynamics. I think that stuff's fascinating. But one thing that's interesting is um, why dating is difficult is because not only are you meeting someone who's a stranger, but since they're a stranger, they have no investment in you and there's no repercussions, right? So if I don't like you and then I just decide not to call you back or ghost you, well, there's no repercussions. I, you know, I hurt your feelings because you thought we had something. But if I met you through, like use my wife, for example, I met her through her brother. And if I did that, her brother would be pissed, <laughs> right? And he would try to come after me. So there's repercussions for treating that person negatively. Mm -hmm. And that's that's another problem that's faced. So many people get ghosted because, well, they have no attachment to them. They don't even know who they are. They don't know where they live. Nothing like that. They don't know anybody in their circle whatsoever. There's zero repercussions to being rude to you, treating you like trash, uh, being a pervert. <laughs> like just, There's no repercussions. But if you were meeting somebody and they're you can't do that. Like if you were in high school, you can't do that to the girl in high school because she's going to tell all these people that you did X, Y, and Z. And then the rumors going to come out and there's going to be repercussions against you and your name's going to mess up. Like there's all types of repercussions. So the lack of repercussions for treating someone terribly uh, in dating is, is actually fueling the problem as well. That's really interesting. Um, I want to send you an article actually after this interview. There's a Dr. Vegan Gorion who, in, in line with what you're describing, has written on the importance of chivalry properly understood and having these institutions in place to protect mm -hmm. people um, for those very reasons. We're not just these little um, 
autonomous individuals cut off from our families and our friends and there are checks and balances built into the system which uh, to your point I think unfortunately in many ways we've lost and uh, yeah. I think that's again something folks like Mary Harrington are helpful in pointing out and um, how if we change the material not that you're necessarily a Marxist if you believe this but you change some of the material conditions around these um, male-female relationships and so on then things will improve uh, hopefully mm-hmm. god willing <laughs> and um no, thanks for that adam and i wanted to, to move on next to ask you a bit more about your move towards the christian faith and um i think about it in my context in part because my wife uh, she's from zimbabwe and uh, she's a believing christian and so on and has been all she's always been a believing christian but um some of her family have drifted away from the christian faith sort of believing it's the white man's religion and this kind of stuff <laughs> and i think there is in modernity there is that a challenge that people are going to have to come across and overcome and um I, i'm just curious as an African-American, I think from my perspective, before I became a believing Christian, I was even struck then as a secular person by Martin Luther King Jr. and his the power of his rhetoric and some of the ideas that he was coming out with. And then I got into Thomas Sowell figures like that, Booker T. Washington, the art of Henry Osawa Tanner, Harry Tubman, lots of, lots of great figures. Um, again, as part of the American story, and uh, I, I would rate them to your point that you don't want to just talk about black issues and so on i, I think this mm-hmm. goes beyond that i think those figures are part of a, the judeo-christian culture and i think they're mm-hmm. civilizationally important if that makes sense um yeah but i wonder about some of your challenges um some of my challenges as far as in, faith or... uh, so coming from that agnostic background to the christian mm-hmm. faith it, it again to your point uh, we're not the, just rationalistic creatures we have these this emotional side and uh, you're sort of told that this this religion is tainted and it belongs to someone else and so on. How have you come overcome that? And um, yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I never, I think we hear a lot of like the Marxist terminology when it comes to faith now. Mm-hmm. But at the time when I was going through my uh transformation so to speak it wasn't in the it wasn't in the mainstream conversation um as far as as far as that even like in politics like the the way of describing it that way you might hear from some like radical you know black pro-black uh who might be like that's the white man's religion or something like that but guess what a lot of black people like white man's religion i don't know what to tell you uh <laughs> Um, so that, that never really, that part never really hit me. Mm. I think it was, it was more so, um, questions that I I couldn't have answered. Um, and, and like you said, part of the problem is because you are rational and, you know, we like to think that we're proof oriented, um, well, where's the proof that God is real and all these all these other things? And I think for me, I got my proof, right? But just not in the way that people think that you would have proof, like you can hold it into your hands or you took a picture of them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
but it's it's more of uh probability of things happening versus coincidence versus something else and i'm one to easily say ah that was a coincidence but at a certain point it's like to me it's like there's too many coincidences for it to be a coincidence you know <laughs> um like I, I mentioned before the people who've looked out for me um the the opportunities that were given to me um or not given to but like provided for me um because of something else that happened um like just like is is i don't even know even after writing the book first off as someone who didn't go to college who has no background in writing for me to write a book that includes psychology and human behavior and have psychologists, multiple psychologists confirm like what you wrote is actually correct. And I actually have a psychologist friend now, um, Dr. Chloe Carmichael, we met up uh, one time in Florida and she said, so I wanna tell you what you described here that is called this. So she was telling me the terms of what, what it was and I didn't know, I didn't even know I had a term. I mean, probably does, of course, like everything has a term, but I didn't know uh, what it was. I knew what it looked like. Um, so for me to be able to express psychology in a layman's kind of way, in a, in a very understanding way, um, and, and talk about family dynamics and things of that nature, to be able to do it that way, um, the moments where I'm just... I sit down and for an hour to an hour and a half, just blurt out all this stuff. I tell people all the time, I didn't write that book by myself, right? Um, you know, my wife and I were dating while well, we were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And I would get to work six in the morning and I would start writing. And then when I was done writing for the day, I would send her what I wrote. And I would do that basically every day. I wrote basically five days a week. Um, and I would send it to her and she, she tells me all the time. She's like, I remember when you would send me this and I'm like, he really wrote this. Like she was really dumbfounded by like the, the message that I was giving, getting across, um, and how profound some of the things that I was saying, there's, there's times when people tell me quotes and I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> like, I just like. That sounds really profound. Oh, I wrote that. Oh, I forgot. I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> um, so it's just it's that kind of thing where it's it's very um like I don't feel like it's just me. Like the the instincts when we talk about instincts, I don't think that's all me. I think that it that's something that God instilled into me, like he instills into everybody. It doesn't matter if you listen to what he's trying to uh, to tell you, where you know, where he's trying to navigate toward uh navigate you. Um, I've had moments where I thought about sinning and I was worried that I was going to be put in a position to sin. And when that situation came, the temptation wasn't there. And I was like, oh, thank God. I felt so relieved. Like I thought somebody might be there and that didn't happen. Um, 
you know, it, it's that kind of thing where, where, um, like, there's just too many coincidences, you know. Yeah. Um, but I just see much of my adult life as tests. Um, like when I tell you I was homeless, uh, not to get into like the complete story because it's a little long, but I moved to Tennessee. I was supposed to stay with someone who was a friend. Um, come to find out he lied to me about a bunch of stuff and he didn't have his own place and he had nowhere for me to stay. Um, the good thing was that I had a job waiting for me when I got there. So when I sat down with my boss, he's like, so how's everything? You know, everything's good with your friend. And normally I would just lie and just deal with it. I was going to sleep in my car, but I decided to tell him the truth. And by the end of that day, him and the rest of the supervisors pulled money together to put me in a hotel room until I got enough money to get my own place. They never asked for any money back or anything. I for sure worked my ass off. Anytime it was overtime, you got it. I'm, I'm there. Like I was the best worker because I felt so grateful for what they did. I really didn't want to sleep in my car. It's not the most comfortable vehicle to sleep in. <laughs> most cars aren't, um, you know, but it, it's stuff like that. Like you have these people, yes, you're going through this moment, but somebody comes in and says, here, let me help you a little bit. Um, and they did, you know, and they didn't have to, like, I, I, I wasn't expecting anything. I, I just think about moments like that. And, you know, in this modern uh, leftist world, um, my, that manager was white. My supervisors who also pitched him were black and white. Um, one of them was gay. Like they're just, they're just people who, and they kept it to themselves. Also, nobody else knew what I was going through, which I appreciated as well. And we never talked about it. They they quite literally paid for it, took care of it, and I just went and I stayed, and that was it. And I appreciate stuff like that. And I think about like, why did this person come into my life like that? They didn't have to, um, you know, I, I think it's so many th different things, but like the past two and a half years has been absolutely insane. The amount of coincidences, even with me writing for the New York Post, I love writing for the New York Post. Absolutely love writing for the New York Post. And that was purely by accident. <laughs> um, I had a tweet that went viral. My friend Batia said, can you write an article? I said, sure. I wrote an article. She wasn't able to use it because somebody else submitted something sounding similar. And so she was like, I asked her, I was like, well, what, what can I do with it? She's like, why don't you send it to your post? Hmm. I was like, you have, a, you have an email? She's like, here you go. She's like, okay. So I just sent it to them. And um, they replied back in 24 hours saying, great article, it's going in today. She's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, had like a, I had no idea. Wasn't even trying to be in the New York Post. And from there, it's been... It's been a relationship for over a year. Um, I write for them almost weekly. Um, and I'm not a columnist, which is even more incredible. And, you know, now I'm friends with the the editor and, and you know, she's she's been to my my place and multiple times and spent time with each other and, and had uh, intimate conversations, you know, stuff like that. And it's just been a real blessing to me, all these great, wonderful people um along the way and 
I'm like, I was supposed to be here to do stuff like this. Like it's, it's really meaningful for me. So um, to me, it's, it's more than just politics. It's more than just like, ah, you know, I, I write some op-eds to me. It's, I feel like I'm making an impact. I'm not super famous or anything like that. Um, but with the platform that I do have, I feel like I am helping people. Um, and maybe just giving some people hope, which is probably enough. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if I completely answered your question, but I, I guess what I was trying to get at is all of these different coincidences, all these different events, the, the ups and downs, the downs were the tests, the ups were the rewards for passing the test and staying in it. Um, the moments of meeting special people absolutely special people who I'm incredibly thankful for meeting um, to inspire me to, to keep doing what I'm doing. The random emails that I get from people who encourage me to, to do what I'm doing. Um, I, I've quite literally, and it never happened to me before, but I quite literally had people walk up to me and said, God is inside you. Right. And that's like, that's a, a thing that kind of pushes you back a little bit. And they didn't have to say that they, they meant it like they're serious. And these are believers. Right. So, uh, and like one last thing I'll, I'll say is, uh, someone who's impactful and she now writes for me for wrong speak. Uh, my friend, Sonia Dalmans, she's, uh, she's Dutch actually. And, um, she saw an article I wrote in the New York post and asked me if I would interview with her for her column that she had in a Dutch paper. So I interviewed with her, uh, there was a Zoom call and we talked for like two hours. And I absolutely loved talking to her. I come to find out she's a theologian and uh, not just with uh, Christianity, but also Islam as well. But she's a Christian herself. And she told me after that, towards the end of that call, she said, you know, you're the most Christ-like person I've met in, in a long time. And like that still sticks with me. You know, mm -hmm. I think about that sometimes. I'm like, that's that's very high praise from someone who, you know, talks to all different types of religious figures and she sees something in me that other people do. So um I don't I don't I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't think any of that is an accident. I think that's all the proof I need. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing, Adam. And um, just to, I'll not keep you much longer. I just want to uh, play on what you're describing there and link it to a few things that are going off in my mind. So um, one of them is, again, back to figures like Jordan Peterson, I think to what you're describing, they are doing at a kind of societal level or pointing to it at a societal level that the Christian faith actually has a greater explanatory power regarding how people behave it's got this instilled wisdom from thousands of years it's again it's not an accident it's like um the best psychology that you could possibly get it, using these categories of evil and everything and spirits describes more accurately how people actually are than their little brains on sticks as if we're primarily rational creatures that just choose from our options like, like you see in modernity and post-modernity and so on and um I think it's powerful too, because 
you show with your work and with your person this victory beyond victimhood, which I think, again, is a properly understood Christian thing. There's this idea, um, again, from figures like Eilich, that the, the, the best is the worst. So you take that, a the care for the victim in Christianity, and then you sort of bastardize it, and then it's all about the victim. But it's Christian life is also about victory over death and Christ's resurrection and so on. And um, like those questions about the, hist- the historicity of Christ and did he really rise from the dead and all, I think there actually are good answers for those and good proofs and everything as far as that goes. But to your point, it goes beyond that. It's how people's lives, how lives have been transformed and society itself has been transformed. And I think what you're describing is intertwining with some of the stuff like Tom Holland has spoken about with Dominion and Ayan Hersey Ali's recent conversion and it's an exciting time for me exploring <laughs> some of these things and I'm grateful for your um, part in that and I'm grateful for what you've said today and um, thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it and uh, God bless you and all the best in the future with your um, baptism and everything too I should say thank you so much I appreciate the opportunity and uh, just at the end to close where can my viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work then Adam I would say for the most part, check out my Substack. I try to have everything that I'm doing uh, kind of run through there. It's adambcoleman.substack.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I'll link that in the description as well. Thank you.